Recovery Elevator, episode 444. Everything in my life is better because of recovery. And that sobriety has to stay number one because if it's not, if I put anything above my sobriety, it's going to take my sobriety from me. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Chad. He's 51 years old from Southern Indiana and took his last drink on March 25th, 2022. Great job, Chad. I want to say hello to all of our Cafe Ari Chat hosts. You guys do such an incredible job. Thank you so much. Today is going to be a good day. In fact, Today has already been a good day. Be sure to follow Recovery Elevator on Instagram. I'm having a blast putting more content out there, more videos on how to say no to a drink, alcohol-free beverage options, tips, suggestions, and sometimes it's just me being a goofball with the goats. Listeners, this Saturday, August 26th, we are partnering with the Phoenix for an alcohol-free block party in person in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. This event is from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., we're going to have a table with information about Recovery Elevator, about Cafe RE, so please make the trip and come say hello in person. There's a link in the show notes with more information. Thank you, Robin. Or you can go to recoveryelevator.com, navigate to the Cafe RE page, get the address and more information. I hope to see some of you listeners in person. And the fun doesn't stop there. We're doing an East Coast Cafe RE meetup tour, so we're planning a meetup in New York City on Wednesday, August 30th. Podcast listeners can come meet up with us at Hecate Cafe and Elixir Lounge. This is on 167th Avenue B at 8 p.m. Then we're going to be in Philadelphia on Saturday, September 2nd, then in D.C. on Tuesday the 5th. These meetups are for Cafe Area members only, so if you sign up this week, you can get the info, and then we'll throw down some soda waters together. All right, before we get any further, let's hear from our sponsor, Soberlink. Did you know there are 15 million people in the United States with an alcohol use disorder? And yet, there's still a stigma that surrounds addiction and recovery. We need to stop being ashamed and start sharing in our sobriety. That's why we're so excited to have a sponsor like Soberlink who shares in our beliefs. If you haven't heard of Soberlink Alcohol Monitoring System, it's the perfect accountability tool for those in recovery. It can help you rebuild trust and get back on track despite slips or relapses. We've teamed up with Soberlink to provide you with tips for handling a relapse, which is a guide that can be downloaded at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. On that page, you'll also find a form to sign up for a $50 off promo code for you or a loved one who is ready to take the next steps in their recovery journey. Okay, let's get started. Today, we're going to find out which states throw them down like Betty Ford. Sorry if that last line was a bit too much, but I heard it on an episode of Sunny in Philadelphia, and I couldn't stop laughing. Rule 22, let's not take ourselves too seriously. And I could also say, hey, let's see which states go hard in the paint with alcohol like Paul Churchill did. And after we cover which states drink the most, I'm going to share a crazy stat with you that I have yet to come across while doing this project, and it is mind-blowing, so stick around. Okay, so something I hear while interviewing guests on the podcast is, 
you don't know what it's like to grow up in Wisconsin, Texas, Las Vegas, or Trenton, New Jersey, or you don't know how much we drink in, just fill in the blank. So yes, it's ubiquitous, but there is a front runner. Let's get into it. Now, this is from a site called Wise Voter, and there's a link in the show notes. Thank you, Robin. All right, here we go. The state with the highest level of alcohol consumption by capita is number one, New Hampshire, by a long shot, with 59.5 gallons of beer, wine, or spirits consumed on average by each person in the state per year. Wow. I thought for sure number one would be North Dakota, which it was until my fellow podcast host Chris Oyen quit drinking nearly six years ago. Okay, number two is Vermont with 49.4 gallons per year. Again, New Hampshire is number one by a long shot. Okay, number one, New Hampshire. Number two, Vermont. Number three, what's up, Montana with 48.7 gallons consumed on average per year. Number four, North Dakota, 43.9 gallons. Number five, Nevada, 41.7 gallons. Number six, Maine, 40.4. Number seven, Delaware, 40.1. Number eight would be the District of Columbia, a.k.a. Washington, D.C., with 39.2 gallons. And you know this makes sense, because I think most politicians are hammered at all times, which is why their statements are always conflicting and they behave like toddlers. Number nine, we have Wisconsin, with 39.2 gallons. And number 10, Hawaii, 38.7 gallons per year on average consumed by its citizens. Okay, for 11 through 50 for time purposes, I'm not going to read the actual consumption amount. I'm just going to read them off. Number 11, Pennsylvania. Number 12, South Dakota. 13, Texas. 14, Louisiana. 15, Iowa. 16, Colorado. 17, Minnesota. 18, Oregon. 19, New Mexico. 20, Mississippi. 21 is California. 22, Nebraska. 23, Missouri. 25, Alaska. 25, just being average, is Florida, 26, Illinois, 27, North Carolina, 28, Wyoming, 29, Ohio, the 30th drunkest state is Arizona, 31, Michigan, 32, Kansas, 33, South Carolina, 34, Virginia, 35, West Virginia, 36, Alabama, 37, Tennessee, 38, Massachusetts, 39, Indiana, the 40th drunkest state would be Rhode Island, followed by New Jersey, 42 is Washington, 43 is Oklahoma, 44 is Connecticut, 45 would be Georgia, 46 Kentucky, 47 New York, 48 Arkansas, 49 Idaho, 50 is Maryland, and 51, I saw this one coming, is Utah with 17.7 gallons per state. You might be saying, wait a second, 51, there's only 50 states, Paul, but that was because the District of Columbia was included there. So there are your 50 drunkest states. Okay, so here's the stat that blew my mind. In 2012, British researcher Dr. David Nutt was tasked by the British government to put a harm score on 20 of the world's most harmful drugs. Guess what came in at number one? No, it wasn't crack, heroin, meth, or cocaine, but you guessed it, as Brad Paisley says, alcohol. Yes, the molecule ethanol is insanely addictive, and I feel everyone will eventually become addicted to alcohol if they drink long enough. But the reason why alcohol landed at number one is the devastation or the economic impacts that alcohol has on society. And here's what I mean. Okay, I'm pulling these figures from the National Drug Abuse Statistics website. Link in the show notes. Thank you, Robin. So let's look at Montana alone. The CDC 
estimates that 15,254 years of potential life or productivity is lost each year due to excessive alcohol consumption. Holy buckets. That's not the stat that blew my mind. Here it is. Montana taxpayers spent $870 million as a result of excess alcohol use in 2010. Adjusted for inflation, this is equivalent to $1.76 billion, or $2.34 per drink in 2022. Holy shit. This means that in Montana, each taxpayer pays $2.34 per drink consumed in the state every day, each month, 365 days a year. My goodness. Now, I averaged this figure for 25 states to give us a rough ballpark figure, which is $2.66 nationally, which is the burden that taxpayers shoulder for alcohol consumption in the USA. All right, does that make sense? The richest country in history is paying on average $2.66 per drink consumed each day for perpetuity. So it makes sense when you realize an estimated 40 to 70% of occupied hospital beds have an underpinning to alcohol. Uh, Hey there, big alcohol. Yes, pick up your trash and use some of those billion plus profits per year to help with this devastation. A criticism I sometimes get is that recovery should be free, that I shouldn't be charging a fee. Well, this podcast is free, but you get the point. Okay, so take that criticism or that energy or that feedback and point it towards big alcohol who is making a killing while they are killing. Myself and my team, we're trying to help. We're trying to be part of the solution. I'm going to be straight up honest with you listeners. Sometimes it's tough to sit behind the mic and not direct energies towards big alcohol. But sometimes I feel pulled in that direction for obvious reasons that I stated above. Now, I do want to be clear. I'm not advocating to make alcohol illegal. We've already tried that. It's called prohibition. It didn't work. Crime went up. In fact, this may surprise people, but I think we legalize it all. We've already got the two most dangerous drugs legal. This would be tobacco and alcohol. And let's take those castigating resources and put them into recovery programs like Portugal did in the early 2000s. The blueprint for the world is there. Portugal has seen major socio and economic improvements after taking a loving opposed to a punitive stance on drugs and addiction. Okay, listeners, here's the good news. You, the listener, are the solution. You putting down the bottle represents so much. It is you being stronger than an incorrect paradigm. You are the most badass person on the planet. You are the most badass group of people on the planet. Respect, mad respect goes out to all the listeners right now. I love you guys. I hope you all enjoyed this intro. Thank you so much for tuning in. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Chad. Sometimes it's hard to decide what to do. I read a quote recently that I really liked. It said, whenever you can't decide which path to take, pick the one that produces change. It resonated with me. These words are very clear and simple, but honestly, for me, sometimes doing the right thing is hard to do. How are we even supposed to know what the right thing is? When I find myself here, having a therapist has been crucial. I need a different perspective. I need someone to catch my blind spots and challenge me gently. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, 
flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Sober Chatty to the podcast. Chad, how you doing, brother? I'm doing pretty good, Chris. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate this opportunity to uh, to share a little bit of my experience, strength, and hoping to recover out loud. I appreciate your willingness, man. It's guests like you, people willing to to share what they've been through, the tough times, to get into the good times. Um, yeah, exactly what you said. It's our experience gives others strength and hope. And grateful to be be here with you, brother. Can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? My sobriety date is 03-25-22. So I've been sober just a little bit over 15 months. Uh, some of the best days of my life so far. Nice. 15 months and change. How are you feeling? I am feeling absolutely the best I've ever felt in my life. You know, I finally found that life worth living. And that's uh, sobriety for me. Amen to that. And can you let listeners know a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, what you do for a living, age, if you're married, family, anything like that? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Absolutely, brother Chris. Um, I'll be 51 in August. Um, I'm from southern Indiana, a little small town outside of Evansville called Hopstock. It's only 200 population, really small Catholic town. I am married to a, to a wonderful, amazing woman that stuck through me through uh, hell and high water. Uh, her name is Lacey. Uh, we have three kids together. Uh, our oldest daughter is 28. Our middle child is 19. And our youngest is 16. So um, I work for the Department of Defense for the Army Corps of Engineers, which is kind of a crazy story with uh, me and Chris there. But yeah, yeah, I've been with them for about 27 years now. So total time, federal government, right around a little over 30 years. Nice. Uh, what do you like to do for fun, Chad? What do I like to do for fun? I like to talk recovery at this moment in my life. I love to talk to anybody that wants to listen to recovery. That's just what I, I, I bleed it right now. I bleed sobriety. I have to, because, uh, you know, if this is how I get, how good I feel at 15 months in, uh, the sky's the only limit and I look forward to that. So, uh, other hobbies I have, I love to umpire softball. That's something I've gotten back into in my sobriety. You know, uh, before I loved to do it and it always led to alcohol. So alcohol led to late nights, which led to the wife not being so happy when I got home. Didn't matter how many games I did that day or, or what the money was. So, but yeah, umpiring. Also, I, I just got into cycling, bro. I, I really like to get out on my bike, throw my earbuds in, and put Recovery Elevator on and just listen to shares and ride. Um, it, it gives me a little bit of peace and serenity. You know, I'm out in the nature. I can hear the birds. Um, I can see people enjoying life. And I can enjoy a little bit of that life myself. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad to be able to get back into some of those hobbies that I lost over the years with my alcoholism. Very cool, man. I, uh, I've got a couple friends who are like hardcore cyclers and yeah, it's, it seems like the people who are the, the guys that I've met who are into it are like into it. Into it. It's like, Oh, all right. All right. It's kind of like sobriety years are all in or, uh, yeah, you might be in the back of the pack, but, uh, as long as you get up and keep going, you'll get an extra mile in or another day. So, uh, yeah, I'm not diehard. But yeah, you know, 20 miles is pretty good. I hope to get up to that 100 mile marker in the day. But uh, like I said, I am 51, but uh, it might take me a while to get there. I'm not a very big fan of hills. So uh, give me the straight flats and uh, I'll roll with it. Uh, Indiana's the right place for that. Uh, <laughs> but 
Uh, that's cool, man. I love to hear about people uh, like rekindle these, you know, past yeah. loves that they had and then find Get new your things. power back. I call it getting my power back and control a little bit of control of my life that I lost over the years. You know, there's so much that I lost that I love to do. And it was just gone. And and I didn't really realize it until it was completely gone. And just being able to dabble back into that now without any thoughts of uh, or any urges or any cravings of drinking. It's just it's really been a, a huge eye opener for me. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just truly been a blessing and I'm grateful for every, every moment I have. That's for sure. Very cool. Well, Chad, let's, uh, let's do what we came here to do, man. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, about addiction and, and what all went down for you and that. And then, uh, I got to believe that we'll get to a point of, uh, uh, make sure that we save some time to talk about your recovery as well, but let's, uh, let's start from the beginning, maybe when you first started drinking or some of your early exposures and then uh, we'll walk forward, brother. Yeah. Thank you, bro. Uh, what I thought was a crazy life, you know, just looking back, I had excuses a little bit of everything. You know, my, my parents were divorced at the age of five, you know, moved to a different state, different family, you know, from there, just kind of an eye opener, I guess, at a young child. So I never really dealt with that over the years. I just kind of kept it bundled up and, and buried it. From there, you know, just being a new kid, I'd never really fit in anywhere, whether it was at my mom's or my dad's, you know, you just never really had that um, that contact with people. You never really felt comfortable in your own skin, I guess is the right way to say it. So I was always striving for that. So to say I was a people pleaser, wow, yeah, that would be an understatement. I would do anything and everything to get a smile out of somebody or to just feel that what I felt like I needed, which was uh, which was just to be liked, you know, just to... Uh, to say, hey, there, you know, there goes a decent guy, or and I would do anything to do that. So, uh, yeah, from there, you know, uh, I moved in with my dad when I was like 13 for sports reasons. You know, uh, I was I excelled at basketball and come to find out at football too. Um, moved in with dad at 13. Dad was a single guy, you know, so I went from a big farm in Illinois to a little small trailer on the wrong side of the tracks in Indiana. You know, uh, I had a little bit of stability in Illinois, and I, you know, like I say, it was just it was different. Um, I didn't feel like I belonged, but I never felt like I belonged anywhere, you know, come to find out I moved in my dad's. I really didn't feel like I belonged there either. Um, so dad was an engineer. He traveled quite a bit. So it wasn't nothing for me to be left home for a little bit of time and, and doing school by myself. It also wasn't nothing for me to get pulled out of football practice because my dad and my older brother were at home destroying the trailer because they'd done drank tequila, shot of tequila for every chest move they made and, <laughs> and, and, and lost. So, uh, you know, just silly things like that, that added up over time. So, once I seen that, you know, yeah, I started dabbling in a little bit of drinking. Cigarettes started at that point. A little bit of weed every once in a while, but uh, mainly just drinking every chance we got, whether it was where we found it at, at, a, at a friend's house or my dad was known to have these little shooters that used to get back on airplanes back in the day. I guess they still have them, but, uh, but uh, you know, we drink all the shooters and fill them up with water. Why does anybody even fill them up with water? Just leave them empty because they're eventually going to find them, right? But any who's... <laughs> Yeah, dad wasn't much of a drinker. You know, my mom drank quite a bit. She actually worked for uh, the substance abuse, the state of Illinois substance abuse counseling, but she's like a secretary, but I was always kind of around it. But mom drank a lot, which was, which was fine. She could control it. I won't, I won't necessarily say she could ever been classified as an alcoholic, but, uh, but yeah, dad never, I don't think I ever remember seeing my dad drink till like I graduated. So, uh, after uh, my eighth grade year of football, I shattered my ankle. And uh, from there, you know, sports just kind of went kaputs back in the 80s. Uh, you know, a major injury like that kind of put everything on hold. With that being said, I kind of I started running around with a new group of friends, um, uh, friends that like to dabble a little bit more in extracurricular activities, which was not sports minded. 
So, you know, I went from playing football to being the kid uh, on the tailgate that would dump out a half a gallon of orange juice and fill it up with a half a gallon of vodka. Hated it. God, it tasted god awful, uh-huh. but we would choke it down, puke, and choke more down. So, uh, I thought it was, the, it was the cool thing to do, right? To fit in, and to be you know, amongst your peers. When you're that age, at least for me, that, yeah, that just that cheap ass screwdriver like curdles my stomach but it was never like it was never it was never like a high-end vodka either it was always like the consonant soup (laughs) just a bunch of letters the the better you didn't know how to pronounce it you could like feel your car off of it if you needed to yeah i'm pretty sure it all came out of russia but i'm not positive (laughs) about that either but but yeah from the you know from there um things in high school slowed down maybe a little bit i met actually met my wife in high school i was a senior uh she was a freshman and uh, yeah it just caught my eye and i was like man i'm gonna marry that girl one of these days and you know unfortunately i got her into drinking right then and there you know it was a purple passion back then so uh it's from that's a purple passion by then i'd found beer so you know it was more like a bush light or or if we got crazy you know we might drink the bush the heavy stuff but uh but that's, you know, that was kind of my high school years. Um, I just struggled through it. I never really had a, I never really found myself, you know, grades were, didn't matter. Dad never checked my grades. So by the time I got to my junior year, I started dabbling, looking into the military life. I knew college wouldn't be for me. And I really didn't want my dad to have to spend the money to put me through college. So um, I knew kind of the military would be my life. You know, he was an Air Force veteran anyways. Didn't really speak too much of his time in the military, but I knew that's kind of what set him on his path to being successful in life so uh yeah by senior year you know i was one of those guys i walked across the t- stage and had to open my diploma to make sure the dang thing was signed but uh, it just happened to be signed so i knew my date to uh leave for the military was set in stone which was great you know i was looking for some structure in my life that i'd never had maybe to find myself a little bit that i'd never been able to do either and uh just learn some life skills because like i said being tossed back you just really don't get um the life skills that uh i don't know not i hate to say that a normal kid does because there's nothing abnormal really about mine but that maybe i'd like to say that i thought kids that had married parents you know that had the perfect family what i thought was the perfect family their parents together for life what i thought was the perfect thing you know i just never got that those teachings so i was hoping the military would give me that you know i went in, in august graduated in may from high school went in, in august after a year or after summer of partying that really got crazy you know i started dabbling a lot more in alcohol beer was still the thing you know it we could drink quite a bit of beer. I don't know if I can put a number on it, but uh, at that time, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 beers, a half a case wasn't much for us, but you know, I, I wouldn't remember things. You know, it's probably when I first started noticing that um, the real effect on me and I started to kind of like it, you know, gone were the days of where I, ch- I choked the, the drink down, you know, because there was a lot of times I just didn't like to taste this stuff, but um, I, I made myself like it. So, uh, you know, I wasn't born an alcoholic, you know, it's scientifically whatever it is, but I, I created this person I am. I created this alcoholic. And by the time I was done with it, I, I loved the way it tasted. But, you know, my military, once I went into the military, did basic training out in Fort Jackson, loved it. Uh, I loved everything about it. I was getting some structure. Um, you know, Iraq was firing up at that time. And, and uh, that that really set in stone my drive to go into the military. I just, I, I wanted to be able to do something for my country that, uh, that, uh, proved that i was worthy enough maybe i could finally fit fit into this skin that i wear around on a daily basis uh it was sad i didn't find it <laughs> after basic training you know went to my ait down in georgia and then got sent straight to germany man germans like to drink really good beer um so did i come to find out um you know <laughs> uh we would party hard and uh we did a, you know not to dabble a little bit but we got a armed up with a 
anyways, we ended up in Kuwait for a little bit of time and uh, came back after that. And we really hammered down, you know, see a little bit of stuff over there. Nothing too crazy. I was a communication specialist. So, uh, but we were assigned with uh, some of the infantry divisions. But uh, needless to say, that was a pretty quick uh, run through out of Kuwait and, and in through there. But anyways, back to Germany, you know, we drank. That's what we did on our downtime. We drank and we drank a lot. Um, was, you know, we used to, the cool thing to do on the barracks was to uh, see how many fish you could have sitting around your room. So be it Jim Beam, be it Jack Daniels. I mean, it was bourbon at that time. I never drank vodka, you know, since probably those high school years. So it was just a bunch of beer and we would top it off with bourbon or just mix it up. And yeah, it was pretty gross because there was a lot of scenes that nobody needs to see, you know. Yeah. Um, a lot of things left on the concrete that uh, couldn't be washed off. But anyways, you know, I started noticing the... Um, psychological change in me um i wasn't my normal self anymore i wasn't fun go happy go lucky you know i started to where i needed to feel like i needed a drink to be able to uh have that smile on my face i went from trying to fit in to almost fitting in to doing everything i could not to fit in but in the military it was kind of what fit in you know if you didn't drink you weren't you definitely weren't going to fit in with the majority of people that i knew so after the military i did my one and done you know uh it wasn't for me i was stationed overseas the whole time uh, the deployments were just firing off. You know, Yugoslavia was breaking up. So that was the next thing on our list to go to. And I was just like, you know, this ain't for me. I like the short hair and I'll keep that for the rest of my life, but I'm moving on. Uh, left there, got lucky, uh, you know, got out, did a couple. Uh, I got into uh, laying concrete in basements and stuff. And I really loved doing that. But by then, uh, my wife, me and my wife had gotten pregnant. You know, she was just in college and starting her college off. And uh, we had that uh-oh moment. So, um you know, you mess around long enough, something's going to happen. And thank God that did happen because, you know, it was really, it was really a tough going for several years. We didn't get married right away. We are Catholics. So uh, kind of went against the religion on that. It really made a lot of people upset. Not necessarily my family, but her family's really deep in the Catholic faith. So, uh, you know, we kind of started off there even on the wrong, the wrong footing. But, you know, once our daughter was born, um, we still, you know, she lived with her parents. I lived, uh, I still at that time moved home with my dad, who was married at this time. I can't remember what number of wife he was on. But uh, anyways, he was still married. And, and I had a younger brother. So uh, I really tried to help out with him quite a bit. And it, and it really worked with me to be able to be an early father. You know, I wasn't scared to change the diapers or to make up a bottle, no matter what time of day it was. But every chance I got, I was still taking a nip of, of drinking. And yeah, just it just continued to add up from there. I could get away with it, you know. Nobody was really watching me. Dad was out and about doing his thing. The wife was at work doing her thing. You know, I would I was dabbing in and out of work, but uh, with the kid, I I'd like to stay home with that too. You know, I didn't want to lose that experience. So, um, not knowing if I'd ever have it again at that point. After uh, Kenzie was about four years old, me and Lacey finally slowed me down enough to get fuck me into getting married. Uh, which was one of the best things that ever happened in my life. You know, I was marrying a woman in my dreams, the woman, the ride, my ride or die. Right. So, um, and the woman that liked to party with me. So, you know, number one, she fell in love with an alcoholic come to find out, which she never knew at that time, but she also married one. So moving into married life, a couple more kids came along, the new homes, um, stress of life just started adding up. Um, I really knew, I didn't know a release at all. My solution was always to drink. Um, that's the only thing I had. You know, I didn't like to talk to doctors about it, of course. Um, There's no guys to really talk about. I had that mano, mono, ego going on to where uh, no matter what I said to anybody, it, it, their response wouldn't have mattered to me anyway. So I just never brought it up. I did a lot of drinking alone. By this time, I was working for the federal government with Corps of Engineers. So uh, I don't know if I should say that on here, but anyways, yeah, Corps of Engineers, it's all good at this point in time in my career. So. 
you know, yeah, just, it just continued to add up. My drinking came to a pastime thing to where it dominated my life. Uh, I couldn't do anything without a drink in my hand. It didn't matter what we were doing, what we had on the agenda for that day. I had to have a drink, be it morning, afternoon, or night. Um, and most of the time, it was all day long. Uh, vodka had come in the scene at this point in time. And me and Tito's were boys. I'm telling you, and Tito became my ride or die. You know, my wife was, uh, she was, uh, yeah, you know how you feel like you're in the back seat. She was probably in the trunk at that point in time in our relationship. You know, as me and Tito's, we were riding around together. So, uh, you know, I mixed my Tito's with Mountain too. Um, and I made them bad boys as about as stiff as you could. She'd take a sip every once in a while and be like, God, are you? Are you really drinking that? It's like, oh, what's the stuff that's 100% alcohol? It's like, um, like Everclear. Yes, there you go, my brother. Everclear, you know, she's like, what are you drinking? Like, it's like, no way. That's no vodka I've ever tasted. Well, it was so damn strong. You know, I couldn't drink it straight, but I had to have a little lime or something to throw the flavor off. But, uh, but yeah, I would just pound it. I mean, I got to, you know, to where a pint wasn't good enough, this wasn't good enough, up to a gallon. And I mean, and I was the sneaky alcoholic or tried thought I was, you know, uh, not only would I hide it anywhere possible, which she would find before I could find it again, because I couldn't remember where the hell I hid it. So, uh, but she knew where the hiding spots were, um, you know, I would, I thought I was slick, you know, I was kept in the freezer, so it'd stay cold. It never froze. Obviously it had too much alcohol in it, but another reason to this day to know it's poison. But anyways, then I'd sneak out and buy another fifth and I'd have to fill that that gallon up mark the line you know i knew where the line was where i started drinking and filled it back up to that line what would i do with the le- what was left over you know i'd polish that bad boy off too and i was working a 12-hour swing shift so there's a lot of alone time mm-hmm. all myself you know the wife would go to work I, i'd take the kids to school as soon as i got back home it's game on uh, there's a lot of times i'm waking up just itching waiting for them to leave the house so i could get that drink in there. You know, I started noticing some of the shakes at that point, a little bit of clammy hands when I wouldn't drink. You know, there was days I would go every once in a while, something would be going on to where I wouldn't wouldn't have a beverage. But, but more times than not, uh, alcohol was dominating my day. And it just got to be so much. If I could, I don't know how much time you got for this, but uh, let me move on to maybe my last drink. You want to do that or something yeah. talking recovery, brother? You know, uh, before... I, I yeah, we've got time. We got time. I, I want to make sure okay. we do spend time on the recovery side of it too. Okay. But one of the things, uh, you know, that you mentioned, you know, uh, a similarity that Chad and I discovered that we had as we were kind of visiting before we hit record is, you know, we b- both work for the government. We've got similar types of jobs, which which means, you know, swing shift and you know, work going from days to nights and. It can be it can be a, a lonely. You know, there's a lot of careers that have this type of jacked up schedule and, and it can be lonely because especially if you're getting ready to go on nights coming off nights or or even if you're on days sometimes like my days off or tuesday through thursday and it's yes sir yes, it sir. creates you know it's not that typical monday through friday it creates a lot of alone time so i, I what i wanted to ask is, is i know what this looked like for me is kind of a, a two-fold question one like what sorts of things were you doing to just kind of cover up you're drinking and, and, and like, how did that, that kind of shift work lifestyle impact your, your ability to drink and, and what that did to you internally. And then two, just what did that do as far as in terms of like your relationship, both with, with your kids and your, and your wife and were you, were you starting to see some consequences or, or, or hear from people? So maybe. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. Brother Chris. Yeah. It was, um, you know, it took over my life. It was, uh, 
it was everything. It was my solution to everything. Me and a wife would uh, have a problem, you know, the stressors of life or the kids, you know, somebody being sick to, uh, I was that kind of dad, you know, that the babysitter got mad because I wouldn't bring the kids to, uh, to be watched, you know, uh, we still got charged whether the kids came or not, but when they're younger, I'd like to have that time with them. Uh, I did. It probably slowed down at that point. I know it did. Um, but as the kids grew older, I could, I could sneak it more. Um, did I hide it? Absolutely, bro. You know, I'll never forget like seven years before I really started getting into sobriety gig, I went to an AA meeting with one of my, my brothers that's still sober to this date. I can't, I want to say he's got like 12 years now, but he, he started at rehab, but, um, I went into an AA meeting and uh, these dudes were in there talking about hiding their liquor bottles and their uh, toilet bowls and their sock drawers and different places. I thought, man, these guys are freaking crazy. What is going on? I'm not that type of drinker. Five years later, that's what I'm doing, Chris. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm hiding this stuff everywhere to where I can't find it. Um, I never did the toilet bowl thing because I thought that was too obvious. But yeah, you know, with my with my career, yeah. It gave me the opportunity to do it more often. I hate to say I'm a loner, but I kind of was, especially with my drinking. If I could get away with it, I was going to give it a try. And with all them open hours, you know, um, it wasn't nothing for me to, uh, yeah, sit around and drink all day, not get a damn thing done when the wife got home. And, yeah, it started added up to a lot of heated conversations, a lot of answers I didn't, number one, want to answer and covered with lies. Honesty was done, gone at this point. So the lies kicked in that I couldn't cover up, couldn't remember what I had said the day before and couldn't get Come up with a better excuse besides the finally say, I don't know why I'm drinking, you know, at the end of the day. But uh, the kids really never seen a lot. You know, that's what's crazy. Uh, my story has rehab in it. But once I sat down with the kids and said, you know, like, Dad, you were a good dad. I just, we didn't see it that much. So I, I don't know that I hit it that well. But maybe just to say that I had that much free time by myself where I could do it. Uh, work, I never really did it work. Uh, you know, there was times I get called in for overtime. And, uh, yeah, I'd been hammering down that day. And obviously, I'm not going to turn down the extra money. So. I drove my butt in there, but yeah, just the driving, the stupid things I did after drinking, you know, it was nothing for me to drive around. It didn't matter who was with me. I would drive around thousands of times uh, with my kids, with my wife. It just, it became routine. It became just how I did life. No real consequences. I had a DUI um, right before me and Lacey got married. So it would have been like 26 years ago. Um, so that would have been like early 2000, no, 23 years ago. That would have been early 2000s. So, um, and no, no real repercussions after that, you know, uh, was, uh, they took my license away for six months. I didn't care. I still drove anyways. Um, and I was driving to work on it. You know what I mean? Uh, work never found out about it. I was still driving in there. So, um, and I never made sure I did the speed limit and, and did not drink during that time because I knew I'd seen it happen to other people, you know, if they got caught or whatever, they had to get called in to do, to take a, a, a P test or whatever for the probation office, you know, it just wouldn't end up being a good thing. And I did respect my government job. I did not want to lose that. I knew that was what I needed to do for the rest of my life. Uh, I love my job. I did not want to lose that. So that would slow me down. But then once I got through the, uh, once I seen the light, once the light started getting a little brighter and, you know, I started working myself out of that trouble, it was game back on, you know, went right back to it. And one thing I started to notice was when I did go back, I, I had to up the ante. You know, everything started getting a little more intensified. I was getting older. My, uh, what do you want to say? My drinking abilities were getting better. Um, not hiding it, but just uh, my tolerance level, I guess I would say, it was getting stronger. So, um, you know, I was always up and in but for a little bit, get right back into it. Just got more and more and more until I ended up to that gallon and gallon of vodka wasn't even enough at that point. So, uh, you know, the health issues started kicking in. I uh, started noticing my body changing. Uh, 
my whole personality changing. Um, my wife had called me out on several times. There were several stints where she had kicked me out of the house. I'd stay sober for a little bit, only to lead myself right back to it once the uh, fog had cleared, you know, through that episode of uh, misunderstanding. <laughs> so yeah. until that, clear, you know, several nights on the couch, me and, me and the couch were buddies to, uh, it was just really normal. Uh, it was just kind of how our marriage worked at that time. It was actually horrible. I can't believe I put her through that. And, even, you know, I thank God she stayed with me, bro. Um, I don't know what I've ever asked her because I really didn't want to know the answer to that one, but why she actually stayed with me. But uh, I think she actually just seen a little bit in me that she she had seen before and she knew what I had come to. She really didn't know why I got in there because I had hidden it. But, you know, once all that stuff came out, which we'll talk about a little bit in my recovery, um, yeah, I think the understanding, she, she knew more than she was allowing me to know. Yeah, she was kind of waiting on me to accept it. So, you know, when you were talking about just kind of like some of those lies that we that we tell our family, and and, and in the moment, that they're small or they they feel small, like ah, oh, it's the, like I don't have. There's not that much in here, or like the the refilling, like those those seem like little small things, and maybe they are at first, maybe they're not. I I don't know. I don't know that we need to quantify that, but we, we convince ourselves that it's these little things, these, these little lies. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal, but they, they have this cumulative effect. And and one thing that I've experienced in my relationship is when I'm lying to my spouse, when I'm lying to my wife or my coworkers or myself, or, it creates this, this separation. And even, absolutely, you know, even, you know, what they're aware of, what we think they're aware of, what they're actually aware of, you know, it's, it's, you know, that's kind of in the gray. But it, it, it creates a separation because there's something that I'm keeping from the person that means the most to me. And it for me, that created this shame and this guilt. And that's what alcohol was good at was was this momentary reprieve. And that alcohol was creating a separation, too. And, and I'm I'm glad that that your wife saw it in you. You know, I'm sure she observed there was a separation. But but like you said, she you think she might have seen something in you. And I know my wife, that's one thing that, uh, that Amy has said to me is she's like, I just, I just wanted you back. Like, I thought that she was like pushing me away because she didn't like me anymore. She was sick of who I was and like, she was sick of my bullshit. That's for sure exactly. <laughs> because it was yes, ridiculous, yes, but yeah. she just like, they just want us back. You know, they, they know yes. who we are and they love us and they, and they just want us back. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that, that, you know, that my wife loved me through it. We had a little bit of a. Uh, separation, but I'm, I'm also grateful for you and your family that, that, uh, that your wife endured. Yeah. Come to find out, you know, we say we're sick and tired. She was sick and tired of watching me being sick and tired, if that makes sense. So, yeah. um, yeah, she was just ready for the healing to begin and never really knew if it would happen. So, uh, yeah, I'm truly blessed to have her a part of my life and, uh, it's been the best thing that's ever happened to me. So, uh, yeah, along with my sobriety today. So yes, sir. Let's, uh, she sounds like a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool person, Chad. Let's, uh, let's walk forward. Let's get up to, you know, the, the time leading up to, to March 25th of 22, kind of paint the picture of what, of what things were, what things were like. And then, and, and then what got you to that fateful day? Yes, sir. That last drink, you know, they always tell us never to forget that last drink. Mom was borderline impossible to forget. You know, we'd had it out. I can't really what had happened. With this being done, one of the most important guys in my life was my father-in-law, her dad. He had passed away uh, four years previous. It had been three years at that point in time. And, you know, uh, he meant a lot to our family. Uh, so the the healing process was 
you know, everybody deals with grief a little different. The way an alcoholic deals with drink or the way this alcoholic dealt with drink was to drink even more. And then come to find out it was a genetic disease. It's something that my wife actually had the gene that carried uh, leukemia. So um, that was a huge stressor on me. Um, you know, it wasn't part of my plan. I almost get emotional every time I talk about it. It oh, wasn't yeah, a part man. of where I wanted us to end up at. Yeah. So uh, that was a great multiplier. But anyways, that last drink, my brother, holy cow, I was in my garage by myself, finished off a gallon of vodka again, and blacked out. You know, blackouts were a big part of my story. That last blackout, um, I smoked my head on the concrete, um, amongst other things that it could be very triggering for other people. So I won't even get into that, but a lot of just craziness happened that night. And I, when I woke up that evening and seen what I, the situation I had created, and she didn't even have the knowledge of i guess she had given up on me that night to uh, just go to sleep you know she's like okay he's on another one of his vendors um you know she came out and uh say she called me a coward and for a military guy that was the uh, something i needed to hear something stung me burnt me to the core to my heart uh but thank god she did it she called me a coward and it made sense finally um after she called me it about seven times <laughs> you know it made sense it burned even worse every time she said it but the more she said it the more it made sense and she was right you know, all this time I've been running from everything I'd went through in life and I just kept covering it up. And what was I covering it up with? Alcohol. So, um, you know, I just called me a card so many times. I finally packed him back. She's like, what, you finally leaving? You know, are you out of here? I was like, no, I think I need help. I need help. This is out of my control. I am powerless over this. I, my life is unmanageable. As she well knew. She said, oh, you finally ready to get some help? Yeah. She's like, where do you want to go? Wait, me. I knew I wanted to go to rehab. But I wanted to hear her say it. She said, you need help. You need you need to go somewhere for a while and, and, and inpatient, not outpatient stuff. And that's what I needed to hear, Chris, because uh, I needed to know she was kind of on board with me a little bit. I, I wanted to know that this was something she wanted also, you know, because I wanted her to be a part of me after I got down with this. So, yeah, yeah, I just wanted that unconditional love. And I knew in order for me to get that sobriety had to be what it was that led us to that point. Anyways, looked around the first place I went to, they said I didn't drink enough, Lord forbid. I don't know <laughs> how that even happens, but it wasn't the right place. You know, it was, it was a God blessing. I didn't know at that point. I left that place falling my eyes. I was like, God, you know, here I am an alcoholic that actually finally wants help. But they won't even freaking accept me. Yeah. So we got on Google and started looking around and thank God I found RCA, Recovery Centers of America out of Indianapolis. I went in there the next day. I went in there five days sober. Um, God, Chris, it saved my life. Uh, I never knew of rehab. I never knew nothing about it. I dabbled in AA. Like I said, at one meeting, that was about it. Um, other than that, I never knew anybody that even tried to get sober for, besides that one friend. And he kind of stayed away with us for, for well, good reasoning, come to find out. But when I went into Recover Centers of America, you know, on my drive up there, I drove myself up there. And I've done a lot of deployments over the years. So I remember the wife saying before I got out of the vehicle, she said, uh, do us a favor, go in there and finally do a deployment for yourself. You need to fix yourself. And I thought, oh my God, she gets me. She knows. She's on board. Holy cow, that means the world to me. I went in there with the biggest smile on my face, Chris. I went to the assessment. They said, give me three good things you can say about yourself. I couldn't come up with nothing. At that point, I hated myself so bad. I was dodging mirrors. I was ducking them, turning the lights out so I wouldn't see myself. Not only the body figure, I just, I hated myself at that point. I hated what I had become. But uh, she was really quick to wrap off three things, you know. She wrapped off a couple of things. But before those three things, she said, used to be. He used to be empathetic. He used to be a caring person. He used to be a loving man. He used to do things with our kids. He used to do things with me. That used to hit me. 
Um, it had to. It, it's something, again, I needed to hear. And then I went in there and I was a sponge, bro. I, I, I absorbed everything I could. Um, it was really good. The, the way they went through, they had a rescue program, program also for uh, emergency responders. So uh, that was huge for me also to get in there with a bunch of military guys, a bunch of uh, a bunch of police and firefighters and the things we go through, emergency response. You know, that's part of my story, too. I didn't even get into that, but it's a little bit of my story, too, with Corps of Engineers. And um, the things you see, you know, working on the river, we... There's people that get sucked into dams and, you know, you have to, unfortunately, uh, do what you have to do to uh, get through your job. Let's we'll say it that way. And uh, it doesn't always end out on the best the best circumstances for everybody. So, um, yeah, just being able to get that out, you know, being able to sit down with therapists and psychologists and figure out, hey, I'm not as abnormal as I thought I was. There's a whole group of people in here that made me feel comfortable talking about myself that I've never been comfortable before. Um, a brotherhood I thought I'd found in the military that I really found in a group of, uh, they say, a group of drunks, a group of people that were struggling, that had a common goal. They wanted the same thing I wanted to. And that was just to have a better life and to be able to live a life of sobriety. Um, I did 30 days in there. I graduated that program, got out, got coined out and um, just hit overdrive. You know, I knew once I got out of that bubble, a 30 day bubble, um, I was going to need a lot more than that. Um, they had gave me the foundation, but it was up to me to build upon that. So. That's when I really dig deep into AA. AA is a huge part of my story. I got into the big book. I started getting into recovery books. I um, started wanting to learn about the neuroscience, how the brain works. Why is my brain like this? Why does it think like this? How did I get to this point in my life? Um, what is my options? And recovery was my option. That's all I could do. And from there, you know, I, I found a Zoom meeting. Zoom meetings were a huge part of me because uh, working a 12-hour swing shift, you don't have a lot of time you're tired a lot of the time yeah. so you come off a night shift it might take you two days to recover from that you still got to do your family chores and keep everybody happy around the house so uh it was just so overwhelming but um once i come out i started having a little bit of energy i started noticing things start to change for me um you know the fog was starting to lift i was starting the light was getting a little brighter for me um the urges were taken away i had a little bit of a spiritual moment while i was in rca that uh you know, my higher power, which I call God, came to me and basically showed me the path I had left in life. And one was death and one was a, a road to sobriety and how I could, uh, number one, help myself, but better my family, but also help others along the path. And that to me was right where I needed to get back to so I could have that empathy, that caring for other people again to help somebody else was a huge um, drive for me in my recovery. Um, I got into Zoom went into some rooms and finally ran into my home group today. It's the boys, the men based out of Atlanta, Georgia. And these group of men, it's a men's meeting. These group of guys are, they're studs. I call them dudes. They are dudes. They have so much sobriety and they greet, talk sobriety. They bleed it. Um, we send out an attitude of gratitude list every day. So you get these lists from these men and uh, we're just hitting each other up all the time. It's like social media outside of social media. Yeah. But, uh, you know, all we did is over phone. We've never really met face to face. And that's something I've learned in my sobriety. Also, you meet, you meet a, a brother, an alcoholic, a fellow alcoholic, um, and they call you, you pick up that phone. It's like you've known them your whole life because they're kind of struggling through the same things you've either been through or you're going through at that time. There's, there's something powerful in, uh, in these meetings and in, in recovery. And it's, it's, I, you know, I don't know where I heard it, but I, th it, you know, it applies to the military as well. Uh, bonds, bonds are fortunate adversity. And when we have stability. that stability, that, that, that's, somebody that same experience. Yeah. It's, you I know, cause you, you and I, it looks different. You know, the way I drink, the way you drink is uh, there's a lot of differences, mm -hmm. but there's, but like we're doing the same thing and, and, and we just get it. 
we got the same goal, right? And let's yeah. live life comfortably, comfortably in sobriety. Um, so, you know, from the Zoom, uh, not that I graduated from Zoom, I still do Zoom quite a bit. But at that point in time, I was doing like seven or 10 meetings a day. You know, I got to work. I'm fortunate enough to be able to do it at work. I can do my recovery at work and still complete my job at it at a good rate. So, um, you know, I can sit there and I can read the big book. The Everything AA app is huge. Um, you know, I can listen to the audio. I am a friend of Bill W. You know, as I was told to go, you know, when you open that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, go to page 112 and read the first three words at the top. You know, it says, read this book. And that's what I did. I uh, started reading it and I found out, you know, I, I had read a book in tw- 2022 that was written about me, this exact person, but it was written and published in 1939. What the hell? <laughs> you know, I was like, oh my God, they know me, but it was written so many years ago. It doesn't even make sense. That optimizing and brighter. But from there, I found, uh, you know, that I started craving even more. Um, recovery was just, I, I bled it. I wanted more of it. So um, at that point, I started Googling podcasts. And when I Google podcasts, uh, Recovery Elevator was up. Come to find out, listening to Recovery Elevator was the first thing that came up. So I got on there and gave it a shot. And Lord forbid, you know, it was, uh, I can't remember the other two names before you, but anyways, you know, he had started it, Chris, I think it was too, right? The guy who started Recovery Elevator? Yes. Uh, Paul, Mr. Churchill. Paul, boom. Paul was in a meeting the other day I attended, but yeah, Paul and then the lady too, you know, I'd listen to so many of them. Odette. Yes. She's awesome. She is awesome. But, um, I'd listen to so many of them. That's what I started doing 24 seven. I would go to sleep with recovery elevator in my ear. I would go to work. I drive to work. So I didn't listen to music anymore. That's what I did. I'd mow the yard recovery elevators in my ear. Just so many stories from a variety of different people. It didn't matter if they had seven days in the beginning, uh, three months, five years, 30 years. Um, People were coming on and being vulnerable enough to tell their stories and how it was working for them. I wanted that. Uh, so I joined uh, Cafe RE on Facebook, got into the up group, and from there started dabbling in their meetings. So, um, yeah, but Recovery Elevator podcast has really um, put my recovery on the, in the fast lane. You know, I still fight to keep my side of the road clean, but um, it's Recovery Elevator, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a broader, more open-minded way for me to recover i'm not a big book thumper but i love the big book i love aa it did a lot for me but um i'm a guy that needs even more um you know i'm addicted to sobriety now and it's kind of a cool feeling but in order to feed that addiction i've got to find other things and that's what recovery elevator did to me one of the one of the things uh you know i don't know if i heard it in when i was in treatment or if i heard it from paul but one of the things that I heard early in my sobriety was the, yeah. like the importance of a, like a recovery portfolio. And, and I've just, I've held on to that. And for me, you know, I've got groups of friends, I've got, you know, my cafe RE community, um, AA is, you know, I still have a sponsor that I work with. I don't attend as many meetings as I used to, but that's, you know, that's part of it. My faith life is a part of it. My family life is a part of it. You know, I've got some some men in my life that are just like good, good dudes that are a part of it. And it's, yeah, it's important for me to have these different facets so that if one, if one were to fail or one takes a back seat for a little while, you know, there's these other things and it's, and you know, we, we change, we, as we grow and change, our needs grow and change. We need different input. We need different feedback. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a great thing. 
Yeah, I call it my plan of action. You know, if one thing doesn't work, I got to go to the next, be that journaling, be that meditating, be that praying to my higher power known as God. I'm going to church, you know, I'm Catholic by faith. So uh, I was going through the motions there at the end. Now, I, now I'm a productive member of the of a faith again, you know, so uh, I'm getting something out of it. I'm getting something out of life now where today it was just all foggy and there just really wasn't much left. I was a cocoon of a person. So uh, just to get that blood flowing again and, and and the health to come back online. I had a TIA after I got out of rehab, a little mini stroke and starting to have some heart issues, but uh, it all had related back to my drinking, you know, kind of find out uh, the sleep and inability to sleep, not only with our 12 hour swing shifts, but you know, alcohol was something I used to, to, to be able to sleep also. So that was gone at that point. But, um, and I was never big into taking anything outside of what the doctor had given me, but, uh, you know, they did get me on a little anxiety pill that I stopped taking after after a year, and I've been off that four or five months now, something like that. But uh, I had no uh, no need for it anymore. It did it it did what it needed to do, so I was ready to do this without anything. And um, yeah, just to know I can do this on my own now, and not on my own. I said, you know, on my own in my head, but to to uh, be around a group of individuals that strive for the same thing on a day in day out basis, and that's just to stay sober and. Uh, yeah, to live comfortably in sobriety, like to say, just to meet those dudes and have those guys on on speed dial on your phone means the world. It does, um, and it's crazy how it happens. You know, like me and you just meeting here today, and come to find out, we got the same careers, and uh, our stories might not be the same, but here our careers are the same. And you know, I know you have kids, and you're married also, so and that's a huge part of your life also. So uh, you know, I love being a father. You know, even when my kids told me I was decent, I was just like, but I could have been so much better. You know, if I I often think, what what would I do if I could hit rewind? And I don't regret much of my past because it brought me to this point in life. But, you know, one thing, if I could hit rewind, just be there more often for my kids, be able to take them days off of work instead of having sick days from hangovers to uh, partaking things that I missed out on my kids' life, you know. So, yeah, uh, yeah there's always a wish I could reduce, but, uh, you know, it, I wouldn't yeah. be at this point maybe if I had redone the wrong way so, or the right way. Yeah, I understand that. It's uh, a lot of us live with some, some residual guilt, uh, just uh, over what could have been. And I think it's for, for me, it's become important to use that as a fuel for Absolutely, you know, like, what can yeah. today look like? Uh, we're getting close to uh rapid fire and there's just, okay. uh, at least, uh, yeah, we'll say at least one question. We'll see if I got follow up, but, okay. uh, you know, one thing that, uh, that I noticed through your story that really it, it hits, it hits home with me, Chad, you know, you talked about my parents weren't divorced too much later, but uh, you, you know, you mentioned being um, a, a child of divorce and being performative and to some extent, and just looking like trying to be what, what people needed, what you thought people needed you to be. Um, mm -hmm. You talk about joining the military and I know that there's for me, you know, before I joined the military, but like as a child, uh, like I was, I was the same way. So I, like, I, like that, that clicks with me is just wanting, like reading the room, seeing what people wanted out of me and becoming that. And sometimes yeah, it I wasn't a big, room pretty quick. Yep. Sometimes it wasn't a big deal, but sometimes it was a big step away from who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. Joining the military, wanting to be a part of something bigger. Same for me. Like that, that hits with me, you know, with your, current career, uh, you know, with some of the roles that you've held in, in federal service, you know, going out on these emergency management, emergency deployments. And again, I think that a lot of that ties in 
with that military thing. And uh, again, same with me. Like I, I haven't done that with uh, with uh, my federal service, but I was volunteer firefighter for nine years because like I wanted to be a part of something. And it's like it was just this this longing. And for me, what a lot of that was is I didn't I didn't have a lot of love for myself. Like for whatever reason, like I just sure. there was there was something missing there. And I just wanted to prove myself to people. I just wanted to show people, I, you know, through, through my actions and through this resume of service that I've given, like, mm-hmm. can you tell me, like, like, I just wanted someone to look at me and tell me that I was enough because maybe if they said that to me, maybe I could believe it about myself. So this long ass winded <laughs> buildup to my question no, is, good, bro. is how's Chad feeling about Chad today? Can you love yourself? Are you feel, you feeling like yes. you're finding a way to love yourself? Yes, sir. Yes. I not only do I love myself, but I got pride in what I do today. I do things with a purpose. I hold myself accountable today. I'm honest. Um, the lies are gone. I don't have to lie anymore. There's nothing to cover up. Uh, I made amends. Still making amends. I got living amends that so I'll have to continue. And with my living amends, what can I do? There's no better way to to uh, fix a wrong than to never go back, right? So drinking is not an option. Um, I have no option to go back to that. Yeah, I always search for that unconditional love, but how do you find it when you can't even love yourself, right? Yeah. Um, now that I can love myself, I'm starting to feel the unconditional love that was probably always there. I just wouldn't allow it to be there because of, of my inability to love myself. Mm-hmm. So not that it wasn't ever there what I was searching for, it was there. I just wasn't willing to accept the fact of that's what it was. You know, mm-hmm. I was searching for something that uh, that was right in front of my face, and I didn't even know it because I didn't care enough to even put enough love in myself to know it. So, uh, yeah, it's crazy how this alcoholic mind thinks, you know. But like I say, coming into the – just thinking about the neuroplasticity, the way our brains work, and how we can rewire it. And, um, you know, when you can tell yourself drinking is not an option long enough, eventually to this hard head, it becomes not an option. Yeah. Um, so I told myself that my next drink kills me. I'm dead. So I'm not going there. I'm sent in fate, bro. Yeah. When we find this life that's worth living, you know, that, that fear kept me out of it for a while and it probably would have kept me out of it for a while longer. But like when I'm able to turn that corner and see the beauty that a life, a life of recovery has afforded me when it's, when I can just take stock and in, in the connections that I'm making with with myself, with my family, with my, my children, the, the people around me, society, and the, my ability to interact and, and be a, a human, a product, a productive human that's contri- contributing yeah. to the greater good versus tearing hey, shit down. Yeah. It's finally I mean, invested in ourselves, yeah. you know, finally to invest in ourselves. Chris, I look back, I've saved like $7,000 over the last 15 months from not drinking alone. Yep. Like, wow, what a great investment. We just to finally care about ourselves. And, you know, I'm not up on no pedestal. Um, I just love recovering. Everything that has brought me, my days are brighter. Everything in my life is better because of recovery. And that sobriety has to stay number one. Because if it's not, if I put anything above my sobriety, it's going to take my sobriety from me. So everything has to fall underneath that sobriety. And uh, if I continue to be sober, I, I think life's going to be pretty good. And like you said, you know, that life worth, worth living, I found it. And it's sobriety. It's got sobriety written all over it. Amen. Well, brother, with that, we have uh, very quickly reached our rapid fire round in 30 to 60 seconds. I'm 
want to have you answer these questions. Chad, are you ready? Let's do this, brother Chris. All right. Number one, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? Man, just that I didn't think it would work for me. I didn't think I had the ability to believe myself enough to give somebody the opportunity to let it work for me, you know, to open my eyes and say, this is going to work if you just give it a chance. Yeah. What is a positive that you didn't expect in a life without alcohol? A positive that I didn't expect. Man, everything's been so positive. Um, You know, my life was so unmanageable. I was so powerless over it. So just to get that power back, to be able to manage everyday life as a father, as a friend, a productive member of society. Yeah, I... Yeah, that's positive. Yeah. That's that's positive for me. Some of those simple gifts can really like <laughs> yes, blow sir. our mind, right? Yeah, I didn't uh, think it was capable. I didn't think I was capable of it. What is your go-to alcohol-free drink? Ice cold Coke Zero. Stuck on it, hooked on it, love it. Sugar-free, calorie-free. Don't want to know what else is in it, but yes, I love it. Give me more of it. <laughs> what is your plan in sobriety moving forward? My plan in sobriety moving forward is just to dig deeper. Um, I've got to go. I've got to go harder every day. Um, I love this feeling and now I crave it. You know, I bleed sobriety and uh, I just want more. I want more of it. There's not enough I can do whether it's speaking or engagements, just talking to a fellow alcoholic, I'm being a sponsor, having sponsees, uh, working 12 steps, living by the 12 traditions and the promises are coming through, brother. What parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in early recovery or thinking about getting sober? Man, a life worth living can be found in sobriety. You're worth it. Give yourself a chance. Um, No is a full answer. I love that. When somebody told me that, it made complete sense because I don't have to explain myself. I don't have to get dab into anything else. I said no, and that's what I meant. And I say no to alcohol. And last, but certainly not least, can you give listeners your favorite? You might need to ditch the booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze if you're going to AA meetings and hear the guys talking about where they hide their alcohol. And a couple years down the road, you find yourself doing the same thing them crazy guys were talking about. You might need to ditch the alcohol. Might be time. I it just might want, be time. I just want to say that AA meetings are not, they're not there to teach us how to go further down the hole. It's, we're supposed, that's not yeah. what we're supposed to take. We're supposed to come out. It's supposed to elevate us. Right. Put the shovel down and start filling in the hole. And the AA is a huge part of my life. So I love every bit of it. And I was glad I made that meeting too, because uh, it gave me something to look back on five years later. You know, yeah. that really set the, got the seed going and uh, got me on my way to recovery. So. Amen. Chad, I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you for your openness. Uh, and I appreciate you, brother. Thank you, Chris. And everything you guys do at Recovery Elevator, I really appreciate it. You guys are saving lives. And uh, for that, um, I'm just worthy. I mean, not worthy, but I, I'm grateful to be here, brother. I'm blessed to be here with you today. I shouldn't be here today, and I am. And thank you for having me. Glad to have you. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Chad, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. Like many people, summer has been full of hustle and bustle for me. With the kids out of school and our short window of hot weather here in North Dakota, we've packed in a bunch of little projects around the house and yard and have tried to get in some summer recreation too. These are good things, 
I love summer and everything that comes with it. But one thing I've noticed is that my recovery has taken a little bit of a backseat this season. I'm not super rigid with attending meetings, and it's been a long time since I've told myself that I must go to X amount of meetings per week, but I usually hit a few. With my family at home more, I've been trying to capitalize on that. And again, this is a good thing. It's also a good thing to be aware of what I'm doing and not doing. I think it's normal for recovery to ebb and flow, but it's important that I don't let it get too far from me. So this past week, I've made some changes. I've made the choice to get up earlier a few mornings so I can start my day with a meeting. It's been nice to get back into the rooms and spend some time with my recovery family. How about you, RE? First, how has your summer been? Have you been doing anything awesome? Take some time to appreciate that. It's worth it. But also, I think it's important to take a little time and make sure we know where we're spending our time. Without judgment, we should ask ourselves if anything has taken a back seat that maybe deserves a little more attention. This isn't about condemnation, but more about making slight course corrections to make sure that we're still moving in the direction we want to. If you need to make that adjustment too, what could that look like for you? Finding some online meetings, checking out a local 12-step schedule and hopping to an in-person meeting. Maybe it's just scheduling a phone call or having a coffee date with some close friends. There is no single path. Make your recovery plan your own. We're the only ones that can do this RE, but we don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.